Thou wast transfigured on the mount, O Christ our God, revealing thy glory to thy disciples as far as they could bear it. Let thine everlasting light shine upon us sinners through the prayers of the Theotokos, O giver of light, glory to Thee. Hi there. Happy New Year. Kalomina. Have a blessed month, everybody. This is Father Athanasius. I am the dean here at the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Tarpon Springs, Florida, and I'm your host for Be Transfigured Ministries. Welcome back to another live stream Bible study, and welcome. There are people in the room, by the way. It's not just me and the computer. So welcome back. Tonight uh, is session 13. It has been the longest time since we've been together. It's been since October, and I was beginning to think I had forgotten everything we learned. So last week, I began going back and reviewing, and we've gotten through a lot of stuff. And this week and next week, we're going to make this great transition in the book of 1 Corinthians. That's what we're studying, by the way. If you're new, welcome. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, a great transition where St. Paul is preparing us to kind of leave the worldly thinking behind, which we're going to start talking about in earnest tonight. But let me get to... It's some introductions. Okay, so if you're new to our Bible study, here's how it works. We use the homilies of St. John Chrysostom as preached somewhere around the year 410, I think we're using, right, if I remember correctly. And these were Bible studies that he did when he was the priest in Antioch. He was not yet the patriarch of Constantinople. He was the priest in Antioch when he was doing these Bible studies. And <clears throat> one of the reasons why we love to use his, his homilies is because he was so prolific. He wrote about almost on almost every verse of the Bible, except a couple of things here and there. And so what we do is every week we do another homily, and we focus on the part of Corinthians that he focused on in that particular homily. So tonight, the way it works is this is session 13, homily 12. And if you uh, are on the website. You can get a uh, download a study guide. The study guide you can find on my website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org. And you'll see a link there to the homily, so you can read along with the homily and also download your study guide. So everyone in the room has a study guide and a homily. And in the study guide, you're going to see where it says text analysis, and you'll see section one, section two, etc. The section numbers correlate to the section numbers in the homily as provided not by St. John Chrysostom, but by the editors. And we're only doing this for the convenience of being able to find it in the homily. Okay, so I pull out verses here and there from the homily, and I arrange it just so it's easy to find um, when you're reading the homily itself, right? So <clears throat> there's no other reason... There's no other organization other than that. Then you see, after the text analysis, you see what I call life application. 
life application is what St. John Chrysostom did in almost every single one of his Bible studies and homilies. So far, we've found only one where it was not the case, where he does the what I call the traditional chapter-verse kind of uh, teaching, and then he launches into this moral teaching, inspired sometimes by one word, sometimes by one verse. And so I call that in our study guide the life application, how we can take what we're reading in Corinthians and translate it to our life. And then I end with what's called a send-off, what's going to lead us into the next week as we prepare for uh, life. Now, the reason, just to remind us, because it's been so long since we've been together, if, you're, if you are repeats, for those of you who are new, the reason we're choosing 1 Corinthians is that the city of Corinth was very much like contemporary America. It was wealthy, it was multicultural, it was highly educated, okay? Also very similar to Antioch, which is where St. John Chrysostom was serving as the priest at the time. And they had many divisions like we do today in contemporary America. So I, we have a lot that we can gather from for our Christian journey. So it's been very exciting for me. Um, let's see who's online here. We have a bunch of people. Now I know, for example, Maria is online. And Maria likes to pretend she's not really here, but I see you, Maria, but you don't see... Oh, no, you see me, but I don't see you. So she's here. Um, we have Philip from Ocala, Florida. We have Angeliki from Canada. There's also a Philip in the room, by the way. Uh, you're not in Ocala right now, are you? You're not like incognito in, in Ocala and here, are you? No. You're bilocating. Um, and so we have people literally from all over the country and other countries, like you see, here's Canada, I almost said Canada, Canada. Um, maybe that's why it's so cold. Angeliki sent us her cold weather. Um, and then uh, we've got some beautiful people. There's an online chat room. I almost forgot again, see that? The online chat room, for those of you watching on the computer. First of all, you have to be logged on to YouTube. You can't do it through my website. And it is uh, organized by the most qualified, educated, wonderful, what other words can I use? Also beautiful, because she's, my wife, Presbyter Devasi, is the moderator for the chat room. But you have to be watching on YouTube. Oh, Ray and Jane are here from Land Lakes. Hey, Ray and Jane are tuned in also. Um, and so we know there's other people sometimes watching where... Uh, they don't like to let us know that they're actually, they're actually on the computer. So anyway, so on the study guide, you can download that. You have the homily, you have the study guide. So I don't think I missed anything, right? We have all our introductions. We're back live. I hope you can hear me. Uh, oh, Angeliki says it's freezing in Montreal. Well, Angeliki, keep the cold weather in Montreal. It was a beautiful 75 degrees today. It's been beautiful here but you can keep your cold weather. Okay, so session 13, homily 12, 1 Corinthians, you get your Bibles ready, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 12. Now, because I have, uh, I'm wearing a new microphone and I'm still having problems getting the old microphones to connect, they can only hear me tonight. I know that's a big downer for you guys who want to be famous on the internet. So I will go ahead and read 
And then when we get to questions, I'll just repeat your questions for the sake of those people watching at home. So, okay? So without further ado, let's go ahead and say our prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Shine within our hearts, loving Master, the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds that we may comprehend the message of your gospel. Instill in us also reverence for your blessed commandments, so that having conquered sinful desires, we may pursue a spiritual life, thinking and doing all those things which are pleasing to you. For you, Christ our God, are the light of our souls and bodies, and to you we give glory, together with your fathers without beginning, and your all holy, good, and life-giving spirit, always, now, and forever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. All right. Before we begin, just as a reminder now, because it's been so long since we've been together, I always recommend that you take time and do two things during the week in preparation for Bible study. One is, I encourage you to read the entire book of 1 Corinthians, start to finish, once every week, just for the sake of reading it, without stopping and taking notes or anything like that, just to be able to absorb it and get it in. Because when we're only looking at four or five or tonight, like six verses at a time, we get very focused, but it's important not to lose track of the entire scope of 1 Corinthians, right? So I always encourage us, read the whole thing so you can start to see the flow, and you'll see where St. Paul is leading us by, re by reading the whole thing every week. And then also is to read the homily. The homily is not always the easiest to get through. Tonight's was kind of long, um, but I, you know, read it once, twice, whatever, just to begin to become familiar with it. The idea is that there's so much there. I'm only pulling a few things. I think tonight, how many, I have, um, I think 20, yeah, only 20 quotes out of, I think, five pages of text. So um, there's a lot there that you'll be able to benefit from, and I'm just pulling up bits and pieces just to be able to see where we're going. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 12. I shall go ahead and read since nobody can hear you guys. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full, you are already rich, you have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, that I also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. And actually I'm going to stop there because that's where he stops in the homily. So it's the first half of verse 12 for us, okay? So let's go ahead and dig in here and see what St. John Chrysostom has to offer us. Again, we're in homily 12. And these are a few quotes there that you'll find in section one of the homily. The first point here, 
that St. John Chrysostom wants to make. St. Paul, again, remember this is a big theme for St. Paul, is how he communicates the message, how he draws us in, how he talks to the people. St. Paul, again, shows humility and condescension to keep their willingness to listen. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. Now, this was not hypocrisy, but condescension and tact. For if he had said openly, as for you, the men whom you are judging are saints and worthy of all admiration, they might have taken it ill and started back. But now in saying, but to me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, and again, who is Paul and who was Apollos? He rendered his speech easy of reception. Right? So by taking to himself in a beautiful, humble way the brunt of his message, right? He's saying, look, put it on me. So therefore, they're more willing to listen. If he had immediately attacked them, they would have either tuned him out or even walked away. Okay, and that was a, it's a very popular tactic for St. Paul and for St. John Christum for that matter. I, on the other hand, have a problem with that. I'm much more to the point, and uh, I have a reputation for that, as, as we all know. Point number two. Don't all call me wrong now at once. You agreed too, you agreed too quickly. <laughs> Point number two. By turning the issue on himself, St. Paul is hoping they will take the cure. This is a really cool quote by St. John Chrysostom. So also Paul, intending to censure them about certain other persons, of whom some he thought were injured, others honored above measure, did not sit down the persons themselves, but conducted the argument in his own name and that of Apollos, in order that reverencing these, they might receive his mode of cure. I think that's really cool, right? Because, and he talks in the homily, if you go further into it, he talks about how if a child is rejecting the medicine, they bring along the parent, maybe more willing and more gentle that the, that the, that the child will trust the parent in accepting the medicine. And this is all what St. Paul is doing here. If he gains their trust, if he gets them to listen, they're more likely to accept the cure. Now keep in mind, St. Paul's leading us somewhere. We won't even get there yet tonight, but this is all leading because then the homily shifts gears here St. Saint, Saint Corinthians shifts gears here in a couple of weeks. So he's bringing us along, trying to get us to even accept the cure. And then he's going to give it to us, right? So that shot of adrenaline into our system. All right, section number two. We are, oh, there's a typo in there. We are united to God and to each other. Listen to what St. John Christum says here. For if we are one and are mutually bound together, it behooves us not to rise up against one another. Now, I included that just as a constant reminder that we're in this thing together, right? And so he's talking about why rise up against each other, why be puffed up. We'll talk about being puffed up in a moment. But this reality theologically here, this is a theological statement that St. That Paul and St. John are making here, that we are bound together. We are united together. We should act that way. So why would we try and be against each other when that would be like being against ourselves, 
right? Point number four, speaking of swelling up, swelling up of our ego is sickness. This is an interesting uh, parallel that, that Chrysostom uses. And he has well called it being puffed up. For when one particular member rises up over the rest, it is nothing else but inflammation and disease. Since in no other way does one member become higher than another, except when a swelling takes place. So in our language, proud flesh. And so in the body of the church also, whoever is inflamed and puffed up, he must be the diseased one, for he is swollen above the proportion of the rest. I love that. You know, he talks about like the, the flesh and so the swollen arm, it's the swollen part that's sick, not the rest of the arm, right? And so he's making that beautiful comparison in terms of our ego to be able to identify the sickness. Because until we identify the sickness, we can't identify the cure, right? Point number five. Division leads to destruction and victory for the devil. Chrysostom says this. For not that we might array ourselves one against another were teachers given us, but that we might all be mutually united. For so he generally to this end is set over the host, that of those who are separate he may make one body. But if he is to break up the army, he stands in the place of an enemy rather than of a general. Right? So anything that causes division is demonic, right? We call him odiavolos, the one who divides, right? And we are united in our baptism. We are united in Christ. We are united to each other. And so anything that causes division, and it can be us, you know, whether we're rising up against each other or something like that. And so he's reminding us that it's that division that brings victory to the devil. And we don't want the devil to win. No, oh, oh, we don't want the devil to win at all. Okay? Section 3. Again, in the homily, I don't know where it is here in the, in the text, but everything we possess was a gift from God. Therefore, we should avoid pride. Just to keep you in mind, this is referencing in verse 7. Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast if you have not, as if you had not received it, right? In other words, if everything we got was from God, there's no reason to be prideful, okay? Nothing is of our own making. Here's what Chrysostom has to say. Nay, it ought to make you shrink back into yourself, for it is not yours what has been given, but the giver's. What if you received it? You received it of him. And if you received it of him, it was not yours which you received. And if you but received what was not your own, why are you exalted as if you had something of your own? I think this is also really important in the concept of stewardship and the concept of all sorts of things that... In the, one of the reasons, for example, in baptism, just to make a parenthesis here, right? What is the first thing we do after a baptism? We give God some of our hair because the body is the only thing that is genuinely ours. Everything else from the moment we, we live is given to us, whether it's given to us by our parents, whether it's given to us by our teachers in terms of knowledge, right? Our body is the only thing that we literally possess. 
And so when it comes to all of this part of life, Chrysostom is trying to help us remember, St. Paul is trying to help us remember, look, if everything comes from God, there is no reason to get puffed up. There's no reason to get all this big ego. Look how wonderful I am, right? Even in the liturgy, what do we do? We incorporate the text in the liturgy. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? Everything we received is from God, and so we have to act that way. Okay, so now we're shifting gears a little bit. Section 4, quote number 7, It is foolish to believe we are so great. St. Paul uses mockery to help us see our foolishness. Listen to this now. Already you are filled, and well, he says already, pointing out from the time the incredibility of their statements and their unreasonable notion of themselves. It was therefore in mockery that he said to them, So quickly have you come to the end, which thing was impossible in the time, for all the more perfect things wait long in futurity. But to be full with a little betokens a feeble soul, and from a little to imagine one's self rich, a sick and miserable one. In other words, why this, there's no reason to be so, so proud Okay, and St. Paul says, look, you've gotten all this, what he, like, you know, he uses the mockery and he uses the, the, the exaggeration to try and help them re realize the foolishness of their behavior. Now, remember the context. Corinthians, the city of Corinth, huge division, highly educated people, multicultural. They've got these, these, these factions I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of this guy, I'm of this guy. So all this, that's remember, that's the context that St. Paul is writing here, right? Again, it's our American con context too, right? I belong to Trump, I belong to Biden, I belong to whatever, right? All of these factions, and St. Paul is trying to bring us together and kind of focus our attention a little bit. So it's not lost on us in terms of our American context either. Section number five, point eight. Paul shows how absurd it is to consider the apostles as last of all, but that is exactly what the world expresses. Chrysostom says this, But you have already a kingdom and honors and great rewards in your fancy. In wishing to carry out their reasoning to still greater absurdity and to exhibit it as incredible in the highest degree, he said not merely we are last, but God made us last. Nor was he satisfied with saying last, but he added also doomed to death, to the end that even one quite void of understanding might feel the statement to be quite incredible, and his words to be the words of one vexed and vehemently abashing them. So here, if sometimes St. Paul can be, I mean, St. John Christian can be a little wordy. I think what he's trying to say here is this. No one would deny that the apostles are great. Even the Corinthians of the day. They would not have said that the apostles were last of all. And yet the world looked at them that way. So what St. Paul is doing here, and you're going to see it shift in the next couple of weeks, is he tries to say, look, 
knowing that the people revere the apostles, he wants them to be associate themselves with the apostles. So he says, look, the apostles are considered last. The apostles are spit on. The apostles are doomed. The apostles, even unto death. So they can say, well, that's kind of crazy. They're great people. What he's doing there is he's trying to shift their mindset to saying, well, wait a minute. If these great people are destined for death and doomed, and as eventually St. Paul says, reviled and spit on and all that kind of thing, then maybe I should rethink my own ego trip here, right? He's banking on them accepting that the apostles were, in fact, great people. So that's kind of what's happening here is he's making that guilt by association, I guess, my words there, not St. John Chrysostom's, of course. Does that make sense? Okay, point number six. The foolishness of the world is completely exposed. Even the angels are amazed at how the apostles are treated so poorly. Even the angels are amazed, right? Because this is um, where he says here, we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men, right? Christum says this, It is possible to become a spectacle unto men, but not so unto angels, when the things done are ordinary. But our wrestlings are such as to be worthy even of angelic contemplation. Think about that for a moment. Angelic contemplation. In other words, why the, why the angels even bother thinking about our struggles? That's kind of what, what St. Paul is saying here, right? What St. John Christum is wanting us to see. Behold, from the things by which he vilifies himself, how again he shows himself great. And from the things about which they are proud, how he displays their meanness. For since to be fools was accounted a meaner thing than to appear wise, to be weak than to be made strong, and unhonored than glorious and distinguished, and that he is about to cast on them the one set of epithets, while he himself accepted the other. He signifies that the latter are better than the former, if at least because of them he turned the throng, I say not of men only, but also of the very angels unto the contemplation of themselves. If he can get them to recognize, you know, it's kind of like, let's make, let me make another comparison here, right? No, you guys aren't parents. Neither are you, but. When we're raising children, one of the things that our children recognize is the sacrifices that we as parents make, or any mentor for that matter, when we make a sacrifice for something, the people who are looking at us, they say, you know what, they take notice of that. If it's important enough for them to forego comforts, if it's important enough for them to struggle, it kind of gets their attention, okay? And so I think what's happening here is St. Paul is trying to get the people's attention by saying, look, if our struggle is worthy of the attention of angels, maybe it's something worthy of you too. Because why would the angels bother themselves with unimportant things? They're angels for crying out loud, right? They're not just worldly figures. And I think that's kind of where this is going, trying to convince the Corinthians, you know what? 
maybe I should pay closer attention here because after all, if the angels are paying attention, maybe I should too. I think that's what's happening. Okay? And that gets us into this St. Paul's now going to, I mean, St. John Christopher is going to go into this, what I call the life application, from these verses of self-denial and persecution and stuff like that, St. John Christopher is going to launch into what I call here, stop working for the praises of men. Okay, keep in mind, you know, what St. Paul says, you guys are this, we are reviled, you're this, we're persecuted, all this, we're taking out the negative, negativity, and so he's trying to help us say, you know what? Forget about pleasing men. And this particular section of the homily is really spectacular. I've only brought a few things out for tonight, but I really encourage you to read it two or three times because there's so much amazing uh, material there from St. John Chrysostom. And the examples he uses in terms of relationships and all that kind of thing I think is really spectacular. So let's just see a few things that I was able to pull out. Point number 10, I'm in section 7 of the homily. Even though we know God sees us and judges us, for some reason we still fear men more than God. Right? This is the point that Christendom is making in this particular part of, this, of the homily. What but this has turned everything upside down? This puts the whole world into confusion that we do all things with an eye to men, and even for our good things, we esteem it nothing to have God as an admirer, but seek the approbation which comes from our fellow servants. And for the contrary, things again, despising him we fear men. And yet surely they shall stand with us before that tribunal doing us no good. But God whom we despise now shall himself pass the sentence upon us. But yet... Though we know these things, we still gape after men, which is the first of sins. It's just, that's why they call them golden mouth, right? I mean, that's just so deep. You could have an hour-long conversation on just that one paragraph, right? These are just little snippets that we're bringing out here, but think about that. We acknowledge they are mere men. We acknowledge, and yet they're the ones we were about pleasing instead of God. Think, I just... It just baffles my mind. Now, keep in mind, this is Chrysostom in the year 410 speaking to the Christians in Antioch, a city very much like contemporary America, wealthy, highly educated, multicultural, and also divided, a lot of factions. Point number 11. We obey men because we desire, we obey man because we desire his approval I'm sorry. We obey men because we desire his approval, but because the act is good or bad. In other words, it doesn't matter whether the act is good or bad, but we want his approval. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. I don't think I wrote that right in my boldness, but we'll figure it out. When, therefore, we have thus subjected ourselves unto them and made them lords over us, there are many other things also which seem unto these our lords to be evil, not being such, these also we flee for our part in like manner. For, for instance, to live in poverty, man account, many account disgraceful, and we flee poverty, not because it is disgraceful, nor because we are so persuaded, 
but because our masters count it as disgraceful and we fear them. Again, to be unhonored and contemptible and void of all authority seems likewise unto the most part a matter of great shame and vileness. This again we flee, not condemning the thing itself, but because of the sentence of our masters. So it doesn't matter if something is ultimately good or bad. We do it to please man. Was there a question in that? I, what she said, what she commented about growing up and there's trophies in terms of soccer and stuff like that, and you're, and you're being rewarded. Okay. I mean, I think it, I would say, so in the eyes of God or the eyes of man, I would say we are being rewarded for things like that in the eyes of men. You're good at soccer, you get a soccer trophy. Of course, you're a little younger than I am. When I was younger, of course, I never played soccer, but... You actually had to win to get a trophy. Now everyone gets a trophy, right? Um, I, I, think, I think more to the point what Chris is trying to say here is even though, uh, let's, use, let's use the everyone gets a trophy thing in soccer. I think objectively everyone acknowledges giving everyone a trophy whether or not they win is probably not helpful. I've never met anyone who thinks that's actually helpful. And yet we do it anyway because other people think we should be giving everybody trophies. I think that's kind of the, maybe that's a better comparison there, okay? Um, even though I've been told by other parents, the kids know who won. Kids keep score, whether the parents keep score or not. Uh, the kids know exactly who won that soccer game, right? Um, Right, even though we know it's bad, I think that's more of the comparison here. We acknowledge that's not a benefit, but we do it anyway because we'd be seen as the ogres. Oh, you meanie puss, you didn't give them a trophy, right? Um, I think that's another, another way, for example, one of, the, one of the struggles in church life is as the priest, as a church, and as Christians, we should learn to be thankful. But as Christians, we should not want to be thanked. So there's this constant tension there, right? Do we thank people genuinely being thankful, or are we thanking them thinking that we're supposed to be thankful? Are we pleasing them even though it's not necessarily... that? So I think there's a lot of that going on too. Is we don't, I think social media plays in that. How many times do I see, for example, someone having a, a meltdown on Facebook or whatever, and all these people are chiming in, thoughts and prayers, I'm sending you good vibes and all that other kind of stuff. And I wonder to myself, are they really feeling that way, or are they afraid if they don't write something, other people will think they don't care? Right? That's kind of what... I think that's kind of what we're playing on here. We're trying to please men rather than, please, than doing what's right and pleasing God. Not everyone gets a trophy. Not everyone gets a trophy. 
but I'll tell you who does get a trophy. My wife for being the best moderator of all time. <laughs> all right. Uh, point number 12. The only way to stop fearing man more than God is to see just how ridiculous man is. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. By getting a mind greater than theirs, by looking into the nature of things, by condemning the voice of the multitude, before all, by training himself in, this, in things really disgraceful to fear not men, but the unsleeping eye, and again, in all good things, to seek the crowns which come from him, meaning God. Why then, neglecting to have so... This is later down in the paragraph. Why then, neglecting to have so admirable an approver, betake we ourselves unto man, who is nothing, all rashness, all at random? Does he call you wicked and polluted when you are not so? So much the more do thou pity him, and weep because he is corrupt, and despise his opinion, because the eyes of his understanding are darkened. For even the apostles were thus evil reported of, and they laughed to scorn their calumniators. I had to look up that word, by the way. Calumniators is those who are kind of, you're stroking your ego. Okay? I had to look that up. I had never heard that word before. So, we're not going to stop trying to please men until we see just how ridiculous they are. And that's why St. Paul and St. John Christum going over and over just to show how crazy this all is. Right? Here's the great apostles, yet they were spit on. Here's this great, yet they were spit on. You just say, just look how ridiculous these people are. Okay? And it gets the imagery and the comparisons that St. John Christum uses um, well, she, you see here in the next point, point number 13. Men exalt sinfulness and animalistic behavior. Again, this is part of just showing how ridiculous man can be. And he goes on and on and on to talk about the traditions around wedding ceremonies. Okay? And how basically, my word now, not necessarily Chrysostom's, how basically so many of these traditions are prostituting the, the, the brides in the way they're, they're paraded through town and the way people dance around them. And that ridiculousness is what he's trying to say. Look, why are we worried about pleasing them? Men exalt sinfulness and animalistic behavior. Point number 13. They collect crowds to fill theaters. And there they introduce choirs of harlots and prostituted children, yea, such as trample on nature herself. And they make the whole people sit on high, and so they captivate their city. So they crown these mighty kings whom they are perpetually admiring for their trophies and victories. And yet, what can be more insipid than this honor? What more undelightful than this delight? From among these, then, do you seek judge to applaud your deeds? Right? Really? These are the ones you're trying to please? These animals? Makes you wonder, right? Point number 14. Men corrupt even blessed behaviors. This is where he goes on to talk about marriage. Thus, marriage is accounted an, an honorable thing, Hebrews 13, 4. 
both by us and by those without, and it is honorable. But when marriages are solemnized, such ridiculous things take place as you shall hear of immediately, because the most part, possessed and beguiled by custom, are not even aware of their absurdity, but need others to teach them. For dancing and cymbals and flutes and shameful words and songs and drunkenness and revelings and all the devil's great heap of garbage is then introduced. And I really encourage you to go back and read the depth of, of, what, um, of what Christam is saying here. He really hammers the debauchery that has been associated with weddings, specifically. And this is, you know, the year 410 in Antioch, so not much has changed in terms of the past 1,600 years. Point number 15. Even if it is customary, evil should be avoided every time. And tell me not of the custom, for if it be an evil thing, let it not be done even once. But if good, let it be done constantly. For tell me, is, it not com is not committing fornication evil? Shall we then allow just once this to be done? By no means. Why? Because though it be done only once, it is evil all the same. So also that the bride be entertained in this way, if it be evil, let it, be done, let it not be done even once. But if it not be evil, let it be done always. Again, how many times? Ah, it's just once. What's that going to hurt? It's just once. Now this goes back, I think we talked about this in October, where St. John Christum is saying, even avoid the little sins, right? Because the little sins pile up. And here he's saying, just don't even let it happen once because we're fighting against this. I think that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. Point number 16. We do evil because we do not want to insult man. Yet though the evils are so great, the omission of these proceedings is called an insult by certain who are no better than brute beasts, and they are indignant that the woman is not exhibited to a multitude, that she is not set forth as a stage spectacle common to all beholders, whereas most assuredly they would rather count it insult when these things do take place, and a laughing stock at a farce. For even now I know that men will condemn me of much folly and making me a laughing stock, but the derision I can bear when any gain accrues from it. Yeah, walking away from gossip, I think so. I think the other part too is that... Um, Again, in the whole, is just once. How many times uh, we're more afraid of insulting somebody than doing what is right? Okay, and we can probably think back less than a week, we've done it at least once, where just to avoid insulting somebody, we have decided that, ah, I'm going to do it anyway because I'd rather not insult them. And this is where I'm saying, you know, we have to really... Again, what, what Christum is trying to do is he's trying to get us to see the ridiculous of man so we'll stop trying to please him and start trying to please God. Keep in mind, he's bringing us somewhere. 
right? So go back and read 1 Corinthians. You see where we're headed in the scope of the letter because he has to accomplish all this in order for us to even swallow the pill. He hasn't even brought us the pill yet. You just wait till we get to chapter 6 and 7 and 8, and he's really going to give us the pill that we need in terms of Corinthians. But we'll get there, I promise. We'll get there, I promise. Point number 17, being a custom is not an excuse, but rather a greater sin. But, says one, the thing is customary. Nay, for this very reason we ought most to bewail it, because the devil has hedged in the thing with custom. In fact, since marriage is a solemn thing, and that which recruits our race and the cause of numerous blessings, that evil one inwardly pining and knowing that it was ordained as a barrier against uncleanness by a new device introduces into it all kinds of uncleanness. Right, so I think what Christum is saying here is that it's not bad enough that we do something sinful. Even worse, the something sinful has become customary. And being customary, we feel obligated to do it. And so he's saying, it's bad enough we do it, it's even worse that we've allowed it to become customary, knowing just how rooted traditions are in our behavior. So for St. John Christum, that's an even greater sin, that sense of, 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 of tradition when it, when it involves sin. Point number 18, nobody is exempt from doing good and avoiding evil. But if you say, female servants do these things, neither so do I quit you of my charge, for neither to these ought such things to have been permitted. For hence, all these evils have their origin. That of our household we make no account. But it is enough in the way of contempt to say, he is a slave, and they are handmaids, and yet, day after day we hear, Galatians 3.28, in Christ Jesus there is neither bond nor free. Again, were it a horse or an ass, thou dost not overlook it, but takest all pains not to have it of an inferior kind. And your slaves who have souls like your own, do you neglect? Did you understand what he was saying there? In other words, Again, in the homily, people are excusing the bad behavior because a lower class of people is doing it. Okay? And then this is why he's saying, look, if it was a horse, wouldn't you want the horse to be the best? And you're expecting less of a human being, your own people? I mean, that's a really, you know, that's just how ridiculous we are. And those are the people that we're trying to please, right? Ah, this gets to be one of my favorites, point number 19. The power of the cross is enough. Stop the magic. Take the mati, take the little blue, blue googly eye, and smash it and throw it away, right? He even talks about it here. Listen to this. What shall we say about the amulets and the bells which are hung around the hand and the scarlet woof and the other things full of extreme folly? 
when they ought to invest the child with nothing else save the protection of the cross. But now that is despised, which has been converted the whole world and given the sore wound to the devil and overthrown all his power. While the thread and the woof and the other amulets of that kind are entrusted with the child's safety. How ridiculous. Right? If you see that blue googly eye, throw it away. Smash it. Get rid of it. You don't need it. We have the cross. Through the cross, death was defeated. There's nothing more powerful than that. No googly eye will ever do the trick. He even goes so far in the example to talk about the, how they were smudging clay on the babies. Or there's one, I guess, um, there was one tradition, he talks about in the homily, that they would light all these candles in front of ancestors. And whatever candle lasted the longest, that's the name the child would get because that would mean long life, right? Christum says, get rid of all that garbage. Get rid of all that garbage. Right. Yeah. Well, it's not just New Age movement. So, for those you can't hear, Philip, he's talking about today's tendency to, I'm burning sage, I'm this, I'm that. Here's the thing I've actually heard people say, I just want to make sure I'm covered. Because they genuinely don't trust in the power of the cross. Right? I went to one house to bless the house, and I ring the doorbell, and hanging on the, um, the lantern outside the door is this big, giant mati. So they open the door. I go, I'll make you a deal. I'll come in your house and bless the house if you throw that away. And they did. They threw it in the garbage. Now, I don't know if they took it out of the garbage afterwards. I really don't know. But I'm like, look, you don't need the mati. I've blessed the house. We have holy water. We have the holy cross. You don't need the mati, right? And, and yet, people will actually say, I want to make sure I'm covered. Because they generally don't trust the power of the cross. That's why. Right. Yeah. Correct. And, and so... The misunderstanding, and again, well, I think what Kristam is saying here is if he can point out just how crazy it sounds, really, the longest candle means the baby's going to live a long life? That, when you, that doesn't even sound rational. And yet there are traditions that this is 1,600 years ago, and I'm sure if I look hard enough, I'm sure I'd find that one somewhere in our little community. Okay. I know there's plenty of mati around here, you know, despite how many times I try to get rid of it. Okay. Point number 20. And this is just, you know, to clobber the mati one more time. How dare we who received Christ trust in magic? Now, now keep in mind, before reading this, right, he's going he's gonna to bash on some Greeks. 
but he doesn't mean us. Okay. This meant pagans in the, in the context that he's speaking here in Antioch. Just keep that just keep that in mind. Now that among Greeks such things should be done is no wonder. But among the worshipers of the cross and partakers in unspeakable mysteries and professors of such high morality that such unseemliness should prevail, this is especially to be deplored again and again. God has honored you with spiritual anointing and to defile your child with mud? God has honored you and, you, and do you dishonor yourself? And when you should inscribe on his forehead the cross, which affords invincible security, do you forego this and cast yourself into the mudness, in the madness of Satan? I mean, how dare us? We have received Christ. In our baptism, we were sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we partake in these ridiculous things? Total ignorance, because we don't know. Because we, and here we are, 21st century, so not much has changed in 1,600 years, right? Here we are, 2022, and he's preaching in 410, and it's the exact same problem. Because... We're more worried about being ridiculed that we got rid of the Mati than actually being willing to get rid of the Mati because it is so ingrained in our cultural experience, right? And so, and it looks cool. And I see people even include it on their baptismal candles. I see people wearing the Mati with the Stavro on their chains, right? All this stuff because they don't want to be ridiculed. Oh, this, oh, that. Oh, it's just the Mati. Oh, it's just this. Again, all the stuff that he's talking about here is as real today as it was 1,600 years ago. And that's why we're reading it like this, because we can, we can gather so much from it. We can really gather so much from it. Okay, so here is our send-off. This is what's going to prepare us for the next week so we can come together next week and enjoy another amazing Bible study. The, <laughs> the world is filled with ridiculous men. Why do we still fear men more than God? By the way, he's not talking about males. He's talking about human beings. So you women are in there too a little bit. So don't... <laughs> Not to, not to pick only on the, on, the, on the male gender, right? All right, so this is what's going to send us off. This is the very end of the homily. Are these, then, I beseech you, the persons whose good opinion you follow after? And what can it be but the extreme of folly to seek earnestly the praise of men so corrupt in their ideas, men whose conduct is all at random, when we ought always to resort to the unsleeping eye and to look to his sentence in all that we do and speak. For these, even if they approve, will have no power to profit us. But he, should he accept our doings, will both hear, make us glorious, and in the future day will impart to us the unspeakable good things, which may it be the lot of us all to obtain through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
with whom to the Father and to the Holy Spirit be glory, power, honor, now and always and to everlasting ages. Amen. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I be, the persons whose good opinion you follow, in other words, these are the guys you're worried about pleasing? So that gives us something to think about for this week. Uh, next week, he is equally challenging to us. He's going to bring us to, a, to the next level so that within a couple of weeks we'll be ready to take the cure, I think. So next week, uh, same time, same place, 7 o'clock here. If you're in, ta in town, join us in downtown Tarpon Springs and Father Trifon Hall. Uh, so next week, session 14, homily 13. Does everybody have the homily to read in advance? Right, you can read it from now and get ready for next week. And then I'll have the study guide with us next week. You can always download it the day before from the website. Okay, so speaking of the website, for those of you watching online, don't forget to visit our website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org, where you can catch up on former uh, sessions and also get a copy of the study guide so you can be ready for each and every single week. Until next week, God bless you, and don't forget to live a new life in Christ. Be Transfigured is a production of Be Transfigured Ministries in cooperation with the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Tarpon Springs, Florida. We depend upon your generosity to maintain our ministry. You can make a safe online donation when you visit our website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org.